Okay, all right. You guys ready to do this? Let's do it. Uh, a couple things just to follow up from last week. Um, I did print out some extra sheets for those uh, who didn't get one last week. Uh, we did run out, and so my bad on that. Um, also, uh, some of you guys probably have uh, seen this, but it, the audio is up on the website podcast. So if you, um, if you want to check it out, it's up there. We'll have each week up there, so if you're unable to make one or if you want to send it to a friend or whatnot, um, or go back maybe if you didn't take good notes or whatever, feel free to do that, so we'll have those up. Um, I guess by way of accountability, who read uh, Psalm 119 in the last two weeks? Not bad, okay. A few, very good. Um, awesome, it's a, it's a great passage, and uh, hopefully that stirred you up a little bit about the Word of God. We covered that last time. Uh, today we're going to be kind of shifting and, and moving out into the actual scripture. So we really spent a lot of time last week setting up, talking about the Bible, what it is, um, and, and then this week we get to dive in. And uh, so I'm really excited about that. There's one thing that I wanted to kind of uh, pick up from last week as a starting point for today that we didn't get to. And I think it, it fits well for uh, today is we talked about the Bible and we talked about God as the author of the Bible and the the, the theme of the scriptures, or what the scriptures are, are a self-revelation, that God is revealing himself to man. Um, one of the things that we didn't get to quite cover was the, what is the mission of God? What is the overarching purpose that God, in writing this, uh, really wants to convey? And so I just wanted to start from there. Um, those of you who know, I mean, above all else, what is God about? What is the one thing that God is about higher than anything else? And we see this throughout the scriptures. What is that? His glory. That's right. God is about his glory. Uh, dozens and dozens of passages I could probably put before you where he is expressly talking about, I did this for the sake of my name. You were created for my glory. I saved you for my glory. All these things for the sake of his glory. Well, what does that mean? We need to define that. What is glory? Glory is weight. It is the weight of God's worth. Uh, the, the word really comes from this idea of scales, like it if you are weighty, um, you weigh more than this. Therefore, you're, it's a term of value. You're more valuable. Um, and so to, to really, if we want to understand God being worthy, it means that we're treasuring or valuing him. We understand the worth that, that he is. Um, and so that's what he, he's about. Um, there's an interesting passage that kind of I want to connect, and that's Exodus 32, where Moses, in praying, talks to God and says, God, show me your glory. He asked God to show me, show me your glory. And so in asking this, it's a very interesting thing to ask. Uh, so what actually happens? Does God then create this magnificent display, show off some miracles or something like that? Well, no. He, he, what he does is he causes himself to pass before Moses. His presence moves in front of Moses. He causes all of his goodness to pass before him. And so we, we see this interesting concept that the glory of God is not some spectacular display, but the glory of God is actually the nature of God. It's himself. That is what is glorious about him. So a lot of people, um, when thinking about the glory of God, or they hear that God is about his glory, they think that that's not, uh, that's not fair, or they, they kind of get this idea of God that he's this um, kind of vain uh, person that just wants compliments, you know? Um, and, uh, and that's not at all what, what we see. And so let me just, there's two reasons why this is, um, this is good that God is about his glory. It's both just and it's good. And so I want to kind of give you those two things. Number one, it's just uh, in the sense that if God was about anything else, God is the highest ultimate power. So if God was about anything else, if he put anything else above his own glory, then in essence he would be an idolater. He would be putting something as ultimate that's not ultimate. Does that make sense? Um, and so in that way he's very much just. He's putting the first thing first. Um, but it's also good that he's about his glory, and this is really where it really brings it home for us, in the sense that if God is about his glory, that means that he wants you and I to see and savor and treasure all that he is. It means that he wants you to experience his power and trust his faithfulness and be awed by his majesty. It, it means that he wants you to see his grace and relish in it and marvel at his beauty. That's what God is about. He wants that because it's when you're satisfied in him that he is most glorified. 
That's what John Piper says. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. That, this is this connection. And this is why it's a great thing that God is about his glory and that this book is about the glory of God. Because God is not content for you to worship some dead, lifeless idol. He's not. He's not content. He wants to be magnified. But in his being magnified is where your joy is found. Because you're going to be encountering the most satisfying being there is. And so this is a a good place to start. And so all the scriptures, we need to have that overarching umbrella that God is about his glory, that this is a good thing for us because his glory means our good, our delight, our joy in him. So we, uh, we're going to dive into Genesis 1 through 3 today, and we won't hit every verse, but we'll hit most of them. And then we're going to kind of zoom in, and then next week we'll zoom back out from Genesis 4 through the rest of Malachi. Um, but the question is why? Why are, we, why are we kind of honing in so specifically on Genesis and Genesis 1 through 3? And the reason is because it's critical. What Genesis is doing, specifically these three chapters, are laying foundation pieces for the rest of Scripture. Um, Genesis is critical, and we see this even from the New Testament authors, who every author in the New Testament quotes Genesis. 103 times it gets quoted in the New Testament. Um, but not just that, it's, it's pivotal in the sense of doctrine. So a lot of things that it talks about are going to be setting God's intention for man for the rest of Scripture. So, for instance, when Jesus is dealing with divorce in Matthew 19, he goes back to Genesis to talk about it because this was God's original design for it. So these are pivotal things that are happening in Genesis 1 through 3, so we really need to focus in on it. Um, So let's do it. Act 1, scene 1. Really, the Scriptures kind of start off with... uh, a lot of action. It's almost like a Bond movie. It, it, it kicks off with a bang. No pun intended, right? It really just kicks off out of the gate. And, uh, and we get going. And so let's, let's do that. Um, oh, you know what? Before we do that, actually, just one one, I'm, I'm going to hit real briefly um, a few views of creation before we actually get into the text. Because what I want us to do is just see what the text says. Um, but there's a few views uh, out there in terms of how do we interpret Genesis 1 and 2 about how God created the heavens and the earth. So I've listed a few of them, um, a few creationist views of ways to interpret these scriptures. Um, number one is just the seven-day literal creation. This is on your sheet. But uh, this is pretty straightforward and simple that um, in six plus one, 24-hour days, God created everything. We go from nothing to everything in these seven days. Second view, day-age theory. Uh, and what this is saying is these, we go from nothing to everything in six plus one uh, eras or periods. So these aren't little 24-hour days. These are undisclosed periods of time. It's a symbolic. When the, when the word says day in Genesis, it means it, it, it's very um, poetic. It could be something far greater, far larger than that, an undisclosed time. Um, a third view is uh, what's called the gap theory. And from this, we go from nothing to everything in Genesis 1, 1 and 2. But then between 1 and 1, 2 and the rest of chapter 1, there's this gap of time. So God creates everything. But in this gap, then, Satan rebels against God. And there's a whole period of history that we don't know anything about. Um, and in that, it kind of spirals into chaos. And so then... 1, 3 through the rest of the chapter is God kind of recreating, making a new creation, new everything. Um, That's called the gap theory. A fourth view is historical creationism. And what this says is that we go from nothing to almost everything in Genesis 1, 1, and 2. Um, And then 1, 3 through the rest are 6 plus 1, literal 24-hour days. And in those days, God is preparing everything for the habitation of man. So he kind of makes the raw material in Genesis 1, 1, and 2, and then actually fashions that raw material in six literal days for the habitation of man. This is my view. This is where I land, is historical creationism. So we'll talk a little bit more about that as we get into Scripture, maybe why I see that, why I believe that. I think it might be clear as we get after it. So here we go. Let's do it. Genesis 1, 1. It says, Bereshit bara Elohim et hashemayim ve'et ha'aretz. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's spectacular. Here we just assume that there is a God. The scriptures just rush right into it, right? He's there. He exists. Uh, they don't explain how he got there. It just, there is God. 
An interesting thing about verses 1 and 2 is that what, what's happening here is this is staging. So the, the tense that's being used in Hebrew is what's called the cow perfect. Um, think of it like a stage. This is um, the narrator coming on the scene. The curtains are still closed, but the narrator's introducing in verse 1 and 2 what's happening. Um, and then in verse 3, the tense of the Hebrew changes. And, uh, and what that signifies is the curtain's being opened now, and it's like, okay, now, now the play, now the drama begins. So this is kind of a way of saying this is background information. This is the prologue right here. Um, so God is creating the heavens and the earth means every, it's, a, it's a way of saying everything, really from top to bottom. And, and this word here for create is bara, and this is going to be significant, we're going to see, because these words change throughout the text. So this is bara, which means to create out of nothing. It is, is the word literally to create. In verse 2 there, we see that the, the earth is without form and void. Um, well, what does that mean? You know, is that some, like, gooey mess? Like, is this, you know, like Play-Doh, like silly, soupy stuff? Um, no, it, it just means that it's a barren wasteland. It, it really, literally means it's desolate and uninhabitable. So the same exact... Uh, phrase, tohu avohu, without form and void, is used in Jeremiah as well, after the, um, the Assyrian invasion. So it's describing that Israel looked just desolate, uninhabitable, after they just got conquered and wiped out. So this is the same type of thing. It's, it's saying that, hey, man can't live on this thing right now. It's without form and without void. So there's our background. Then we dive in in verse 3, and Moses starts talking about the six days. Uh, the first day being that God creates light. Uh, he speaks. This is really profound, right? He just opens his mouth and creates. Um, I don't know about you. I don't do that, right? <laughs> he speaks, and out of nothing, things are. Uh, this is how God creates. This is the word of his power, uh, or the power of his word. Um, in creating light, he uh, separates, or it's best kind of said, he distinguishes the, the sun from the moon. Um, it's like he's turning the lamp on now. Um, so he's, he's had this, and now, boom, he causes it to shine. And we have day, we have night, we have light. In naming it, he, he calls it light um, and, and day, night and day. And in naming these things, a lot of people think, well, when God names or when you name something in the Bible, that means you're exerting authority over it if you name something. Um, but that's not really what this is getting at here, and especially in Genesis, too. We also see in Genesis that this, this principle isn't always true because Hagar names God, and that doesn't mean that she has authority over God. When you name something, what you're saying is, I, I correctly perceive what this is. I'm calling it by what it should be called. It's an exercise in wisdom. If you name something, you're saying, I rightly perceive what this thing is. And so God is demonstrating that he's wise, and we're going to see this play out a little bit later. Um, notice also here that this is kind of interesting, that creation is marked by a rising <coughs> star in the east, the sun. Uh, we're going to see that later, right? Does that sound familiar? Something else, a rising star in the east? Um, so it's not just with creation. We'll see it again with redemption. So, day two. Um, and again, I said this last week, but feel free to interrupt me at any point. I know I'm going to go pretty fast. There's a lot today we're going to cover. Um, and uh, you may have to just go back and listen, and that's fine. But if at any point you want to stop and ask questions, do it. And I'll kind of pause at a few places so that you can ask, and we'll just kind of discuss a little bit. Day two uh, is the sky and water. God creates the sky and water, but he doesn't create bara. He makes a saw. This is a different Hebrew word. This word means to more form or fashion. It's different than creating out of nothing. He's shaping something that already exists. Um, also, what's interesting here is it doesn't say about day two that it's good. Uh, we see every other day, God says, and it's good. Here it doesn't say that it was good. And this is helpful for us to understand what does it mean when the scriptures say it's good, or God says this is good, or when he says later it's not good for man to be alone. I, th I think what we can narrow good down to meaning is meaning that which is beneficial for man, mankind. That which is beneficial for man. Um, is it beneficial, we'll see, that he makes the dry land and the vegetation and the animals? Yes, these are things that are absolutely beneficial for man, directly beneficial. Is the sky beneficial? Sure, but it's kind of like it's 
kind of like saying, yeah, I mean, that's good. But it's not like this is absolutely directly correlated to the habitation of man. Um, so that's kind of what it's zooming in on when it says this is good or this is not good. It's appropriate. Um, day three, God makes the dry land and vegetation. So the waters recede and up comes the dry land and vegetation starts to grow. And of course, God says, this is good. This is beneficial for man. Day four, then, we move on to what's called the luminaries. And you can see on your page here, I've created this little chart that it's just form and function. So day one, two, and three are God kind of forming these things. And day four, five, and six, he's kind of filling those things or assigning function to those different areas. There's a, there's a parallel here that's really cool. Um, so day four is the luminaries, uh, the stars. Again, it's interesting because we see the sun and the moon come up again, and people like to say, oh, there's, this is contradictory. He made the sun and the moon twice. Um, all that it, we're getting at here is God is assigning function to these lights that he has now placed. He's creating seasons. He's creating, um, by creating seasons, creating the worship calendar for man. He's setting everything in motion in the heavens um, that will direct men to understand this is this season, this is this time, it's this holiday. This is very important for the Jews, their calendar, their worship calendar. Um, so we see God kind of making that, and yes, it's beneficial for man, it's good. Day five, we move on, and he goes to birds and sea animals. So this is, again, create. This is that word, bara. So he actually, he actually is creating these sea animals out of nothing. There wasn't something already existing that he just fashioned a sea animal out of. No, he, he actually creates here. Again, and it's good. And then we see this interesting blessing that he tells them to, to multiply. Um, day six uh, is, is the last day of creation, and he creates uh, beasts or land animals, and then of course, people. Um, now, for the beast, there's no multiply blessing, and that makes sense, right? If we had uh, millions and millions of lions running around, this would not be beneficial for man, would it? <laughs> no, that's not good. Uh, it is good to have some, yes, uh, but it's not good to, for them to be multiplying like crazy. Um, but he doesn't say quite yet that it's good about man. He said it's good that land animals... So we'll see a little bit later that it's not good, yet man is not quite yet good. So uh, Genesis 1.26. Well, let's just stop. Six days of creation. Let me pause for a second. Uh, take a breather. Process. Any questions? Okay. Someone read for me Genesis 1.26. That would be very helpful. Really loud. Perfect. Let us make man in our image. Uh, this is interesting. Us, of course, is plural, pronoun. <coughs> image is a singular noun. Let us, plural, make man in our image, singular. A lot of people think that, that here we see a, a glimpse of the Trinity, that let us, this plural, um, it's not explicit, of course. We don't know anything about the Son. We don't know anything about Jesus. We've heard about the Spirit, which was hovering over the waters in verse 2. So we already know there's something else besides this one entity. But what we do have is this picture of a, a plurality uh, within unity, of a, a composite oneness, um, that there's multiple and yet one. Um, so it's just very interesting. It's a little intriguing and mysterious at this point, um, but it's still there. The image of God, uh, what does this mean? This is really interesting. This is a very distinct designation for man, but like, what does that mean, that we're made in the image of God? Uh, I think if we can distill it down to two main things, um, it would be, number one, that um, royal representation is what's kind of meant by this term. Um, the second being sonship, so we'll talk about that. Royal representation just means, to break that down, royal meaning that we are like his ambassadors. We are the... Uh, envoys really that represent his dominion we are the ruling authority by which in our ruling it points back to God as ruler so he's kind of commissioned us to go represent me as a ruler on earth have authority as I have authority 
Um, and then the representation is really that word. It, it, it kind of more forms like the imprint or icon or like that's that literal word when you think of an image, a snapshot. Like that's what that imprint, that's what this is getting at, that representation. Um, we have things that are, that are certain faculties that we only have as man, right? Um, a conscious, a soul. These are things that the rest of creation doesn't have. We are um, formed in literally his image. And so um, now this doesn't mean, of course, that when we look at man, we can know all that there is to know about God. Uh, we don't project upwards. That's not what we do. But we do look at God, or we do look at us, and we say, okay, we can get an idea of some things about God. Here's some glimpses, maybe, of what He is like based on looking around us. But there is a second thing about image, and that um, we see from Genesis five three later when Adam has son Seth, and it says Seth, Seth was made in his image, or he was born in his image. That exact phrase, and so. There is this concept of sonship, of being a, a daughter, of being a son of God that's inherent in here too, which is profound because that gives us great value. Uh, we're not just these royal ambassadors for God that the earth is supposed to look at and see God, but we're also, there's something very personal. We're his sons. We are his daughters. Um, this is, this is, gives us a, our value. Um, when we say made in your image, we use that a lot when we talk about the sanctity of life, or we talk about men and women being created equal, or we talk about uh, abolishing slavery, or things like this. We point to men and women's inherent value. This is what we mean, be made in the image of God. There is this concept of sonship, and of course we know where does this concept of being made in the image of God ultimately happen? It, it happens in Jesus. Uh, we see Colossians 1.15. He's the image of the invisible God. Boom. There it is. Or we see um, in Hebrews 1.3, he's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. So all that, all that the image of God is getting at will one day culminate in the person of Jesus Christ. He will embody the image of God perfectly. Uh, but we're, obviously we're not there yet. Um, so, that's what we mean uh, when we talk about the image of God. What, uh, something also to note just about this that's interesting here is this verse 27. Um, so, male and female, he created them. Um, it's, a, it's a bit of poetry there. The, kinda, the, the word breaks up, and now we're into a little bit of poetry. And so, this is a snapshot. I put it on your paper, and I also wrote it up on this board. But what we get often is this literary pattern of narrative poetry epilogue. This is something that Moses uses a lot. Um, and so the, all of Genesis 1 is an example of that. We'll see this big chunk of narrative. Then we'll see a little bit of poetry after it. And then we'll see a little bit of this epilogue kind of after we <coughs> wrap up a few verses. And uh, we see Genesis 1 is like this. Genesis 2 is like this. Um, all of Genesis, the whole book as a whole, fits like this. The whole Pentateuch, Genesis through Deuteronomy, fits this. And then even the whole Old Testament in the Hebrew order of the scriptures fits this way as well, with their last, chat, uh, last books being First and Second Chronicles form that epilogue. Now, why is this important? This is important because what Moses is doing is he's drawing a highlighter out for us, you guys. He's pointing, he's very clearly putting the spotlight on some things when he does it. It's a liter literary device. It's a way of drawing importance to certain things. And what he's highlighting is he's highlighting, of course, what's at the beginning that's always important, He's highlighting what's in the poetry and kind of what happens right before the poetry. And then he highlights the epilogue. The, this is a way of highlighting things and kind of, not that, not that everything's not important, obviously it is, but this long kind of span of narrative kind of gets a little more in the, in the background. And these, these kind of things get brought to the foreground. <coughs> so this is an important way that, that Moses is helping us see what, what's really critical here. We also see, of course, that there's male and female distinction here, um, and we're going to kind of dive into that more in chapter 2. The epilogue part is really that verse 28, so we see God commissioning um, man then with this blessing. Be fruitful and multiply. Subdue creation. Um, and then, of course, verse 29 and 30 shows us that, that there's plenty of food. He's amply su supplied and provided for man uh, in the garden. They have everything that they need. And so... Kind of in closing chapter 1, we see that we've moved from without form and void at the beginning into the state of it's good. 
it's habitable for man. We have all that we need now. So that's how we've progressed, and the pinnacle of creation has been we've moved towards mankind. So that's, that's kind of what's happened in, in Genesis 1, if we can characterize it in two parts. It's number one, the creation um, and of the land, and then number two, the formation of that land um, towards uh, kind of culminating in mankind itself. So. Um, then, of course, uh, day seven, chapter two, one through three, God rests. And, uh, you know, this is interesting because a lot of people think, <laughs> I don't know where we get this. People think he's tired. It's like, okay, God needed a break. Uh, day seven, let's just, you know, relax a little bit. It's like he just got off the treadmill. He's huffing and puffing and uh, needs to sit down for a bit. And, I mean, this is foolish. This word just simply means in the Hebrew, literally stopped. He ceased. He was done. He was complete. Um, it doesn't mean he was exhausted, and so uh, we do see that, and we also see this interesting pattern now that's established with a Sabbath, like that we too should take periods of stopping, seizing, um, not that we don't do any activity, but that we simply rest in our provision. God provides, and at the end of chapter one, he, he gives you everything that you need. Now stop and rest in that provision for a little bit. So that's week one. Take one. Uh, any any questions before we move into chapter 2? Yes, Judy. Um, verse 28 talks about uh, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. What subdue? What does that say? I think of subduing something as overtaking it. Is that what, is that what it's saying here? Uh, that's a good question. I think by subdue, he means to not be overtaken by it. Um, and so um, we'll see a little bit more what this looks like uh, when we get to the fall in Genesis 3. Um, I think we'll get to see a little bit better picture because this blessing gets thwarted. It gets cursed in the fall. And so that will help us understand a little bit more what it looks like. Um, so hold that. And if we don't unpack that enough in chapter 3, let me know. Okay. And maybe we'll unpack it a little more. Cool. Okay, chapter two. Um, are we starting all over here? Uh, we get back to the creation of man and woman again. What's happening? Um, no, we're not starting all over. These are not uh, two separate accounts. What Moses is doing here is he's just taking a step back right before the creation of man and woman, and he wants to zoom in a little bit. He goes, let's unpack this a little more. This is pretty spectacular, and I want to I wanna dive into this a little bit more. So let's recount this in a little more detail. So that's what chapter two is doing. Um, the state of the garden. So you see in, in verse 5 and 6 that things are sufficient. Things are well. There's no bushes, small plants. There's no rain. All these three things are things that are associated with the fall. We see the curse later. Um, and so right now you don't have to work it. There's no need to water. There's no weeds. That, you know, the garden is taking care of itself. It's fine. Um, and then we see in, in verse 7 the forming of man. So here we go. He's going to bring out of the dust of the ground, which is very interesting because we just talked about man being made in the image of God, which is this very divine picture of man, and now we see he's coming up from the dust of the ground. Well, this is kind of a counterbalance of going, yeah, you're made in the image of God, and there's these divine imprints in you, but you're also very mortal. At the end of the day, you're dust, you know? So there's this bit of a counterbalance there. Um, I want to fast forward to verse 15. Uh, this is a really important verse, and... Um, will someone read um, Genesis 2.15? Sure, go ahead. Yeah, our designated yeah. reader. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. What, is your, what are some other versions say? It's that last phrase, to work it and take care of it, or work it and keep it. What are some other versions say? Tend and care for it. Tend and care for it. Okay, so um, God puts us in this garden in order to work it and keep it, and that is our divine commission to cultivate a garden. Uh, I'm going to put before you that that should read something different, and here's why. Um, that, uh, the word it right there is, uh, the word it is feminine, but the word garden is masculine. <coughs> so if God puts us in the garden masculine to work it, feminine, something's not lining up there in the Hebrew. 
something's off. Um, what I, and also, I, I should say this too, if he puts us, that word put is a term so often used with rest. So we've just talked about Sabbath, everything's good in the garden, and then he's going to put us in the garden. He's going to put us in a place of rest to work and keep. This just seems a little off. So here's what I'm going to propose to you. I'm going to propose that this actually reads, he put us in the garden to worship and obey. And here's where I'm going to get that crazy notion. You see this Hebrew word up here that I wrote? This is the word to work it, or or what it's saying literally to work it there. Um, La'avadah. Remember I told you last week that the Masoretes in 700s, 800s, 900s, 1000s, they, they added these little vowel points, these little dots and these things underneath the letters um, so that we could try to preserve the pronunciation of things. Um, so great intentions. Well, if you remove this dot right here at the very end, this word now means to worship. One little dot. Take that away. It means to worship. Uh, the word to keep there, the second word, uh, also means to obey. That's the same word, to, to keep or to obey. It's often used as a law. You keep the law. You obey the law. Um, and so what, what I'm after here is I'm after uh, that our divine decree in the garden is not to be gardeners, but is to be worshipers and obeyers of God. This also makes a lot more sense with the very next verse, because what does the next verse say? He commanded the Lord God commanded well that makes sense if he just told us that he put us in the garden to worship and obey obey what well the very next verse tells us what to obey he gives us the command um, this is the reason this is important and a lot of books have been written on the fact that this says to work it and keep it there's whole books out there that say your purpose is to be a cultivator um, but but my my counter to that is your purpose is simply to trust the Lord to worship him to rest in him to obey him um, there's no cultivating needing in, in the garden prior to the fall. It's taking care of itself. It's watering itself. There's no bushes or trees or shrubs. There's no weeds happening. You don't have to cultivate anything. Your, your sole priority is simply to relate to God, to commune with Him, to worship and trust Him and obey Him. And He gives us His command. Question. Yeah. Um, so does that then... It, it actually, uh, it does, because this actually then doesn't have an it now. And the other word, keep it, um, it does work with command. So you keep a command. So, yes. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So, I know, it sounds crazy. I'm out there. Here we go. You just wrote me off now. Um, other questions about that crazy notion? Okay, I'll just keep going if you have. I have a question. Yeah. Is is there a translation that has the correct? There's not. No. Uh, the reason the, where I started getting going with this was my Hebrew professor in seminary, um, Dr. Josh Williams. He uh, he he started. He kind of presented this um, in a class that, that we took in Hebrew as we were getting into it, and uh, so I just started looking at it and thought, you know what, this makes a lot of sense. The more I look, looked at it, the more I thought about it. Um, so that's kind of where wheels started turning on that. As far as I know, no, 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 no translation for that. Um, okay, so what is that command then that we're supposed to obey in verse 16 and 17? Eat of anything except the tree of knowledge of good and bad, good and evil, really good and bad. Um, so what, what does this command mean? What is this tree of knowledge of good and evil, good and bad? Some people say it's uh, moral innocence. So in other words, Adam and Eve didn't know uh, what was good and what was bad uh, before they ate of this tree. Um, the problem then, of course, is if that's true, then how could God hold them responsible? They didn't actually know that it was, you know, bad to disobey, you know? Um, that that kind of doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Um, so it's not this idea of complete moral innocence. Uh, there is conscience already there. Second, um, a second idea, I guess, is this comprehensive knowledge. Like, they would know everything, this omniscience. If they ate of this fruit, then they would be able to see everything, like God sees everything. Um, I mean, history tells us that's not true. Do you know everything? Do I know everything? Has that happened? Has that occurred? Of course not. Um, and so I, I just don't think that's, that's right. Uh, here's a third thought on it, that 
it's more of this concept of moral autonomy. So when they eat of this, or um, this, this tree is more of the concept of if the knowledge of good, meaning you know or you get to determine, you have the authority to determine what is good and what is bad. So um, it's this idea of wisdom. And we see this even in chapter 3 when, when Eve sees the fruit and she, says it, she saw that it was desirable to make one wise. Oh, okay. Um, because every tree had fruit, but this one, this one's going to make me wise. So there's this concept of wisdom, being able to determine what is good and what is not good. Um, and so that's really what the tree is getting at. It's not really mere recognition of what is good or what is not good. That's okay for us to go, okay, yeah, I see that this is good and not good. But rather, this is the place, this, by eating this fruit, it's saying, I want to determine. I want the place of authority to say what is good and what is not good. And we'll get into that more in the next chapter. I think it'll be clearer for you. But suffice to say right now, this is what we mean by this. And so when God's saying, don't eat of this tree, he goes, trust me, uh, come under my authority in determining what is good for you and what is not good. I will tell you what is good and not good. You just need to, to walk and trust me and obey that. Um, versus thinking you, you want to figure out what's really good and not good. Um, notice also that the tree of life's not restricted. That's interesting, right? The knowledge of good and evil is, but the tree of life isn't restricted. Um, because life rightly belongs to God, yes, just like wisdom, but he shares that with us. Um, it, it is a place for him to dispense towards us, whereas the place of wisdom is not, that no one can, n- not everyone can step into that place of wisdom. But he absolutely wants us to step into that place of life. Okay, it's not good for man to be alone. Amen, women, right? Can I get some amens on that? Man, it isn't good for men to be alone. Come on, and you single men know what I'm talking about. Um, and it's not good because there's a lot of reasons it's not good. Because if you've ever been to a bachelor pad, you know, that's enough set, right? Walk into the bathroom. It's not good for man to be alone. Um, but here, the reason I think the scriptures are zooming on why it's not good, why the Lord says it's not good, is more in line with it's not. It's, it's more in line with the blessing. So the blessing was to be fruitful and multiply. Well, this is the Lord saying it's not good. He can't fulfill this blessing on his own. It's not a suitable helper. He can't walk in this. So there's a there's a billion reasons why it's not good for man to be alone. But the text is really pulling out this reason as kind of a focus that it's not good because he can't fulfill the blessing. He can't walk in what I've um, invited him into. So then directly after that, Adam names the animals. You're like, why would he name? Well, the whole point of that is showing that, that none of these are a suitable helper, right? None of these things, none of the, the land animals, none of the fish, none of the birds, none of these things will work. They can't help him fulfill the blessing. Something is still missing. And so he creates woman, and out of man he does it. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Here's this beautiful passage um, that's that's the same essence. And so these words, husband and wife in the Hebrew, ish, isha, very similar to us, man, woman, right? Like they are the same essence that's out of man she was created. So it's this feminine counterpart. And I put on there a quote that I love by Matthew Henry that really talks about man being created out of the side of Adam. Um, It's one of my favorites. And the point is in his quote is that um, it's not to rule over or be ruled over. And so he says, Eve was not taken out of Adam's head to top him, neither out of his feet to be trampled by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected by him, and near his heart to be loved by him. Oh, I love that. Uh, you know, also in this passage when it's talking about how Eve is made, it's, it's a different word. It's this word bana, which is a very um, unusual word. And what it means literally is like fashion, like crafted it. It's a very artistic word, and so I think it's really special when you think of God as designing us with a lot of intention, specifically women, this building. It's a very, um, it's kind of like that word in Ephesians 2.10, workmanship. You are his workmanship. Um, so, then of course, Adam busts out in, in poet, right? Um, we uh, like to make fun of this or enjoy this, that finally, right, the man after a uh, woman's created, then he just becomes this uh, poet now, after seeing her beauty and just burst out, he can't hold it inside. I'm sure that's exactly what happened. And, uh, and then he names her once again, so he correctly discerns who she is, woman, out of man. Um, and then again, we have this narrative poetry epilogue, notice, again in chapter 2. So this is the poem 
that kind of highlight, that crescendos in the forming of woman out of man. As a part of the epilogue, then we see kind of these marriage bedrock principles that get woven in. This is what Jesus points back to in Matthew 19 when he says, uh, for this reason, a, a man and woman shall leave their father and mother, right? Um, so this idea of leaving and cleaving here, we're becoming a new family. There's a covenant commitment now that we're making to one another. And in this commitment, we are, uh, in our marriage, we are imaging uh, God in our becoming one flesh, this plurality within unity, we are imaging, we're mirroring the, the divine here. Um, that, that one flesh, you've probably heard before maybe, but this really is a cool, it, really we see this knitting of souls happening. Um, this is not just a physical term, but it's something much deeper than that. So the, the two really are, are mixing, pouring together. It's a whole, right, the, the sand at the weddings. Gosh, it's so cheesy. I can't stand that. Um, but, it, but I understand why we do it, okay? I understand it, right? Or the lightings of the flame. There you go. And then lastly, we see they're naked and unashamed. Um, you know, there's a lot of people in our day that are naked and unashamed. Uh, but I don't think that's what they mean right here, right? It's a little different. Uh, here the scriptures are getting at uh, this type of um, innocence, really, and, and transparency, that there's no shame. There, there's nothing to hide from my spouse, that we're dwelling together in unity. This is a safe haven, a place of trust. It's a beautiful picture. And so, in wrapping up chapter 2, we see the state of Eden. We kind of close in on these three great chapters in the Bible. Genesis 1, 2, and the last chapter in Revelation, right? That's where everything's right. <laughs> We get three chapters. Everything else in between pretty jacked up. But we get three chapters where it's right and good. And so we kind of close that up right here. And, and there's really three things that I want to point out. Um, you'll see this kind of under the, the fall and pre-fall part of your page. Um, that in, the, in the Garden of Eden, there's a state of land, blessing, and relationship. Land, man had the garden. They had a home. Uh, blessing, God uh, divinely commissioned them to walk and be fruitful, multiply, have dominion. Uh, these were good, positive things. And then a relationship, they, they walked with God. There was innocence, they were naked and unashamed. Um, they were in a right relationship with God. We'll, of course, uh, see those three things turned on their head in a bit. So, let me pause again for questions before we get into chapter 3. Yeah, Chad. I'm sorry, I have like a ton of questions. I'm going to keep it like once we can add to a second layer. But it seems like, like under views of creation, you give like four views, and then you talk about the two creation, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 being diff- I mean, the same, not different. But just, just a cursory look in English of the two Genesis 1 Genesis 2. It looks like they're different stories. I mean, for one, they're, they're in different order. So like in Genesis 1, it's like plants, animals, then humans. In Genesis 2, it's humans, then plants, then animals. So just from the English version, it looks clear that they can't be telling the same thing, at least literally, maybe figuratively, they're getting at the same point. But then even in the Hebrew, like you were talking Hebrew stuff up there, like in Genesis 1, God is referred to as Elohim, but in Genesis 2, it's Yahweh, Elohim. And so there's a difference. It looks like it's different writing, even in Hebrew. All that to say, for a lot of reasons, most scholar, biblical scholars these days have a different view of creation than what we have on the board. There's a different view of the creation story, which is that it's not really telling us what actually happened literally, but it's a figurative story that fit right along with their culture on on their God and uh, you know it's not telling us scientifically what happened. Yeah. But I don't see that as <coughs> Yeah. And I was surprised to learn maybe five years ago yeah. since that that's the majority view even among even conservative biblical scholars, not even like Princeton and Yale and stuff like that, but like at Wheaton, you know, which is really conservative Christian school. The professor not teaching us a scientific explanation of how the earth was created or how man was created, but that it's kind of this 
that not a view? Yeah, uh, you know, a lot of what you're referring to is the whole J-E-D-P stuff, the Yahwehs, the Elohis, that there's four different authors in the Pentateuch. And, uh, you know, man, I think that uh, there's explanations for that. I don't, I don't see that as a – I don't see there's any reason for us to not view Genesis 1 and 2 as literal. Um, I, don't, I don't see that. I don't see why we need to allegorize it. Um, so – you know, you're talking about in Genesis 2, the, the plants, the different order or whatnot. I don't think Genesis 2 is talking about creation of plants. Um, I think it's describing the state of the garden, but I don't, see it, I don't see it revisiting those other days from Genesis 1. Um, the different words of Yahweh and Elohim. Um, I mean, I don't, I don't see a... Uh, we can talk more about the authorship of that, but yeah, I don't... Um, and so, there, yeah, there's other views. There's plenty of other views, and... Um, you could be correct that uh, I don't know what most scholars believe, um, so I'll trust you on that. I don't know what most scholars believe. Um, I know what a lot of conservative guys and women that I trust believe, and I know what the scripture uh, says. I don't think anything about Genesis uh, or the writing of the whole Pentateuch, nothing about it suggests that it's an allegory or that it's poetry to be taken not as literal. Um, I guess what I'm asking Well, I don't know. I don't know what your view is. So I, I mean, I don't know if it doesn't, if it doesn't fit into those. Well, I think there's some views on here that aren't literal. The day, age, and the gap are both not literal. You know, they don't, they don't view those as seven literal days. And they, they, um, there's a lot of interpretation even within those. So the day, age theory, you can have multiple thoughts underneath that because now you've got this undisclosed period of time. It's not an actual day. Well, you can do a lot of stuff with that. It's just a, it's just a, a day. Well, so, I mean, people could take, you could take that wherever. And so maybe that's where your view might fall more closely aligned with that. I don't, I don't know. So I, don't, I'll have, I guess I'll have to hear more about what your view is, maybe. So your, your view of historical creationism is taking the first chapters of Genesis literally? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Well, you guys, anybody watch that debate this week? Uh, Ken Ham and Bill Nye, the science guy. And uh, yeah, I mean, two hours, you know, they debated. And what's interesting about that debate is they really focused a lot on young earth, old earth. They didn't really talk much about evolution creationism. They kind of microed into that. Um, but uh, so one of the things about historical creationism, you can see that the, date, the dating of the earth, uh, it does allow for an old earth then. Because Genesis 1, 1 and 1, 2 are an indisclosed period of time. His creating of the raw materials, uh, there's no dating on that. Does that make sense? Then we get into the six days, and those are six days, literally, yeah. Um, but, but I'll be the first to admit, listen, I don't know all the, the details. Um, this is not a subject, creation, evolution, dating that I am well-versed in. I will say that right up front. And so... Um, I'm not the right one to handle all the different scientific data, um, what it says, what it doesn't say, how it points to this, how it doesn't point to that. Um, I do know that uh, we've got a dude in our church who was burdened after Todd's talk a few weeks ago about your gifts and stuff, that um, he's very passionate about um, evolution and creationism, and so he's approached us about wanting to kind of put together a presentation on it. And so we gave him the green light to go ahead and begin working on that, and he'll present it to Todd, Jay, and I, and, and then we'll go from there. Um, so that would be a good forum, maybe to talk more about this, I think. So, Or, you know, you have my email, so maybe if there's some specific, specific things you're thinking about, uh, again, feel free to email me, and then we, if, if, if I go, dude, great stuff, Patrick, I don't know, you know? Um, at least maybe I could point you to some good resources. Um, so, 
Okay. Genesis 3, we got 10 minutes. Let's do it. We open up with the serpent. Is the serpent Satan? What, what's happening here? Who is this? Um, well, whether it's actually Satan uh, or whether it's Satan, a uh, figure for Satan, um, you know, Satan has embodied the serpent. Uh, I don't really think that's critical, well, however you want to take that, uh, whether it's literal or not. Sometimes the scriptures um, do use a lot of figure, figurative language, absolutely. And so back to Chad's point, we're just talking about that. Um, but I don't think it actually matters here, whether it is or not. The point is the Bible is communicating this is the arch enemy of God here, whether it's an actual snake or not. doesn't matter. Um, this is the arch enemy of God. This is the opposing force to the Lord. Um, how did Satan come about? We're not going to get into that, but if you want to, Isaiah 13, there's some places in Ezekiel, you'll see some a little bit about who is Satan, uh, the fallen angel, all that. For now, we're simply assuming the serpent. We're not going to get into that a lot more. Um, but we are going to get into the temptation and what happens actually in this passage. So in verse 1, then we see Satan directly coming at man and woman. And what does he say? Did God actually say? It's very key, right? Interesting. How, what's his strategy? He's going to cast doubt on God's word. Is this really what he said? He's baiting. He's kind of emphasizing in his words the prohibition, not all that God has provided for them and all of the trees and all of the garden. He focuses on this one thing that God prohibits. He really say that if you eat of it, you're going to die? Um, and in Eve's response, we know well that Eve adds a little bit in there, right? She says, uh, neither shall you touch it. When she's saying, hey, God said, yeah, we can't eat of this, nor shall you touch it. Well, God never said that. She's adding to that. She's doing what lots of us, including myself, love to do. Form rules. Create rules, right? Extra rules. Um, we love to do that. It's exactly what she does. And then, of course, Satan comes back in verse 4 and just directly, directly contrasts the Lord's word. You'll not surely die. Oh, well, this is a direct attack on God's character, right? He said this. Is this true or is this not true? Well, can God be trusted? That's what Satan is simply baiting them with. When he says this, does God actually, or you will not surely die? Let me ask you this. Was he, was he telling a lie? Did they die the day that they ate the fruit? No, yes. Okay, right. Not physically, that's right. Not physically, but we'll get into a little bit more about how they died. Um, his, his main point, and this is always the enemy's main point, right? God's holding out on you. He's got more for you. He's holding out. There's something better here. You're settling. And so he's enticing, he's provoking, and then we see, of course, uh, in verse 6, then the devastating, the, the hammer blows, and we see sin enter the world. And they violate God's lone command. Notice again here this wisdom language. Eve says she saw the fruit, saw that it was desirous uh, for, for wisdom, it, desiring to make, one's, make one wise. So this is very interesting. This is huge because if we're going to characterize the fall and we're going to look at sin, we need to look in detail here because it's going to tell us about us. It's going to tell us about how you and I sin and the nature of sin. And so this is really important that we, we dive in and go, okay, what is the root cause here? Is the root cause ingratitude that they were uh, selfish and they just weren't content with what God provided? No, I mean, it's, it's much more than that. Was the, was the root cause rebellion? Um, disobedience? You know, just straight up saying, no, I'm going to do what I want to do. Well, in a sense, yes, of course, there is that. But I think it's deeper there, and you don't see any of that language of rebellion and disobedience as much as you see this language for wisdom. It's an improper search for wisdom. That is what we see at the heart and the root of this sin. Um, because where we have this divine command, yes, there's disobedience, but ultimately, even Adam, they want to run the show. They want to determine what is good and what is not good. They're not content to trust God and rest in that. And so we see this pattern. She sees, she desires, and then she takes. That's another pattern we see of sin. David does the same thing with Bathsheba. Sees, desires, takes. She saw the fruit. She desired it. As seeing as it one to make one wise, and she takes and eats. This is exactly the pattern of sin. Um, so let me get in some definition of sin. We see at least a major portion of it here, like I already said, is that it's a lack of trust in God. 
um, with the result of man asserting themselves into the place of God. Romans 14, 23 is going to shed some light on us when it says anything that doesn't proceed from faith is sin. Uh, so what that means is, is that it means that you could give and I could give to the church and it could be sin for me and not sin for you because of the state of my heart. If I'm not trusting him, if I'm not resting in him, then it's sin. Um, and so we're defining sin at a heart level here. This is very important. Not just simply in action. When we do that, of course, uh, we understand that sin, like I said, is not just an action. It's not just something we do, but rather it's something we are. We don't say, I sinned. We say, I am sinful is a more accurate way to describe it. It's a condition of our heart more than it is simply a symptom, uh, an external action. And so um, I like to pull in when talking about sin a definition, the greatest commandment, which is what we talked about today in the service. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. If that's all the commands can be summed down to that one thing, then what I'm going to tell you is sin is the opposite of that. It's loving something other than God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's loving something more than Him. That's all it is. And so, uh, which is exactly not trusting Him. We, we love maybe ourself above Him or any part of creation, but we're essentially worshiping creation over Creator. That is what sin. I put a definition on your sheet of a quote from John Piper. He says this about sin. He says, What is sin? It is the glory of God not honored, the holiness of God not reverenced, the greatness of God not admired, the power of God not praised, the truth of God not sought, the wisdom of God not esteemed, the beauty of God not treasured, the goodness of God not savored, the faithfulness of God not trusted, the promises of God not relied upon, the commandments of God not obeyed, the justice of God not respected, the wrath of God not feared, grace of God not cherished, the presence of God not prized, and the person of God not loved. He goes on to say, sin is esteeming and valuing and honoring and enjoying man and his creations above God. This is huge because it tells us about us. This is exactly what you and I do. This is who we are. Because when Adam sinned, Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15 is going to tell us that all died in Adam all died. So we all sinned in Adam. And we can't get this concept of like, well, I wouldn't have done that. I wouldn't have made that choice. I would have got it right. No, you wouldn't have, you know? You would have been just there with Adam and Eve and me, and we would have done the exact same thing. It's inherent in our nature to want not to trust and submit to God, but to be God. And so God ends up confronting sin, of course, in verse 9. He goes, who does he go to first? So you go to Adam or Eve? Adam, yeah. That's right. He holds him responsible. So does Paul in Romans. He holds Adam responsible. Um, so let's take a look as we wrap things up at sin's results and sin's consequences. Sin's results, um, we see in verse 7, there's guilt. Uh, there's awareness of sin. They see it. They, they knew their eyes were opened now. That innocence that we had in the garden is now lost Number two, we see shame. Uh, so instantly, now they start to hide and cover themselves, right? Uh, rather than being naked and unashamed, they are now trying to cover up. They don't want to be seen. There's fear. Um, Adam says, I heard your, your, your voice, and I was afraid. Well, he wasn't afraid before. Uh, instead of running to God, he runs from God. And then... Also in verse 12 and 13, the, the classic blame game, right? She made me do it. And then she says, he made me do it to the serpent, right? We're constantly shifting that blame. and These are all results of sin. This is what sin does. This is how it impairs and fractures. Um, and, and specifically, then we see verse 14 19 through 19, the curse. So the actual consequences of sin. What does it specifically do? Well, for the serpent, God curses it and says, you're going to eat dust, which is a figure for saying you're going to be humiliated um, and defeated. And then there's this imminent conflict in verse 15 with the seed of woman, which we'll talk about more in a second. For Eve, there is pain in childbearing, which notice uh, is a direct, this is a, a, a direct attack on the heart of the blessing, which was to be fruitful and multiply. So it's, it's sticking it straight to that blessing. Um, and then strife with the husband, which is also obviously part of that blessing. This word, your desire shall be for him, but he shall rule over you. This word desire is also used in Genesis 4 about Cain and Abel. And uh, it simply means that you will contend for the headship. 
Um, that's what it's telling women. You will want to take that place of authority, but he will rule over you. And that rule is not always a great word. He's going to take that place, um, and he's not going to do it necessarily in the most loving, caring, serving way that he ought to. So there's, there's enmity there that uh, is fractured. Um, God's design is, is man, woman, animals, and in sin exactly it goes the opposite. Animal, serpent, through woman, through man. It fractures this state of harmony and unity um, and the um, direction that the Lord has set up in terms of authority and things are, are broken from there on. And we'll talk more about maybe what that looks like week six discipleship. I don't want to get too much into men and women's roles and complementarianism, but essentially see that it's broken our relationship as, as husband and wife are fractured. And then for Adam, the ground is cursed. Uh, interesting, the work now is painful labor. That must have meant it wasn't earlier. Again, this too strikes at the heart of the blessing. The blessing was to subdue creation, is to have dominion over it. Uh, in the sense that, um, so part of the, the way that he could have subdued creation, have dominion over it, is to uh, resist the serpent. He didn't have dominion over it. Dominion, uh, exercising authority, putting in its rightful place, he didn't with the serpent. He didn't actually fulfill that blessing of subduing creation. Instead, he allowed creation to affect him, to have master over him. Um, so that is one way they didn't fulfill the blessing. And now we're going to see that the Pandora's box is open because now creation is going to war against him. Literally, you're, you're going to have to fight the ground every day until, so that's the last word, until you return to the ground. And so, boom, there's that physical death right there. And it's not going to happen that day, but it does then enter the world. Physical death comes in. So we see very much that when the Bible talks about death in the sense of Ephesians 2, that you were dead in your trespasses, this is the type of death it's talking about. Instead of land blessing and relationship, you're going to have exile kicked out of the garden. You're not going to have a home. You're going to be a nomad. You're going to have, instead of blessing, you're going to have curse. You're going to have everything that that you want to fulfill the blessing is going to be frustrated, it's thwarted. Instead of relationship being right with God, you are now put out of the garden, removed from the tree of life, access to fellowship with him is thwarted. So land blessing relationship becomes exile, curse, and separation. And so that's what it says. When you're dead in your trespasses, that's what it's talking about. This is spiritual death. This is biblical death. So... Let's, let's wrap it up. Let's conclude this thing. Um, we see a, a couple important doctrines in this first three chapters. First, creation, of course. That all is right, that things are good, that land blessing relationship is there. That we are made in the image of God. These things are pivotal. And then we see also, of course, we just hashed out the doctrine of sin and man. We see that um, concept of depravity, that sin has spread and pervaded us all. Man, we are in need of a divine rescue. We're in need of that. And that's uh, exactly what the rest of the Bible is going to try to answer. How do we get back to Eden? How do we get back to the garden? How do, we, how do we get restored to land and blessing and relationship? This is what the rest of the Old Testament, and of course the New Testament, is going to get at trying to answer. How will this problem of man be remedied? And how will the enemy of man be essentially annihilated, removed? Well, we get a little bit glimpse, and this is where we're going to leave today. We get a little bit of a glimpse of that. We get two glimpses. One is in Genesis 3.21, where God shows provision in the midst of his judgment. In the midst of his judgment, right there, he he makes a covering for Adam and Eve to clothe them. Um, Part of this covering is, is an animal skin, and so inherent in that, interestingly, is the shedding of blood. He would have had to kill an animal to cover them. So there's that principle that the covering of sin and shame, there is necessary the shedding of blood. But we see also not just God's general grace in providing this covering, but we see Genesis 3.15, this little seed of the gospel right there where it says that, that the, the enemy is going to strike at the heel of this one person that's born of a woman, but this one person is going to crush the head of that enemy. This one who's born of a woman, who's a man, we'll later find out and we'll trace that next week. Um, and of course we know who this man is. He's coming. He's going to deal the final blow to the enemy 
Um, and just as one man, through one man, sin and death came, through also one man, um, life is going to come. And so that's where we'll leave it. Um, yeah, with God's rescue plan kind of put in motion, and we'll get into that rescue plan more in depth next week. So uh, I will stop recording, and then if you have any questions, feel free to, to come chat.